Dixon de Pommier, welcome to the Knowledge Centre. Thank Thanks you. for joining us. It's my pleasure. So, um, just to talk um, about your work on vertical farms, mm -hmm. um, how close are we to actualizing your version of vertical farming? Right. Um, well, to be honest with you, it's not my version. <laughs> I would like to um, emphasize the fact that this idea arose in a classroom that I taught. So in 1999, there was the, the idea arose, and there were seven students and myself. Over the next nine years, the class size grew from seven to around 35, <clears throat> which is the most we can fit in the room. Uh, we divided off into groups almost every year to answer questions related to is this a crazy idea or is this okay? It's not a crazy idea? Okay, now what do you, <laughs> how do you do it? Uh, what kind of crops can you grow inside of a building, for instance? And uh, how tall can you make that building? And how much engineering does it require? And do you use grow lights and hydroponics or do you use traditional farming methods? All these questions arose during those 10 years. About year five, we posted our results on the internet on a website called The Vertical Farm, which is still up and running, but it's different than it was because uh, because they're now vertical farms. So the miracle of this was that out of a classroom idea, which seemed to be a really crazy solution to global climate change and to encroachment into forests and all kinds of other related problems, uh, it turns out to be a viable solution that people agreed with and then started to invest in. And so today, we have vertical farms in Japan, Korea, Singapore, Sweden, the United States, and Canada, with many more to come, by the way. So, yeah, this is a really viable idea. And boy, are we surprised and happy that it actually worked out like this. There's, so these few, um, few are up and running now, and there are more yes. on the way. Yes. What's the emerging view of how successful they are? Right. Uh, well, again, too early to tell, but uh, the success rate is measured in terms of banks giving loans for commercially viable farms, right? They don't give out money trivially, and people don't ask for the money trivially because it's hard to pay it back if you don't have a good idea and the bank doesn't see it right away. Eventually, you'll lose your shirt. So the, the uh, economic driver in this is a high-tech greenhouse, and those have been highly successful over the last 20 years. Uh, with grow lights or not grow lights, hydroponics or soil-based, it didn't really matter. It's year-round growing that you get out of it. So the economic model was there for a multi-story building. The only thing was, that was required was engineering. And the engineering has come along. And in fact, some of these vertical farms are two or three stories tall, but there are no separations inside. It's, it's growing systems that grow right up in racks to the ceiling. So um, in essence, whatever you can do on a first floor, you can do on a three-story or four-story even. I've even seen one 18 stories tall. But it wasn't growing food. We, we can come back to that. But so the people that are in, that are now in control of vertical farms, let's say in Singapore and in Chicago and in Vancouver, those are all commercially viable. Um, you'll never get them to tell you how much money they're going to make, <laughs> nor will you get them to tell you exactly how they do things because these are industrial secrets. Obviously, uh, maybe the plant, which is a non nonprofit NGO run organization, would sit you down and show you how this works. But certainly Farmed Here, which is the newest of the vertical farms that I know of, which is a 90,000 square foot warehouse filled with green plants of all kinds, the people that establish that will keep it close to their vest as to actually how they do it. However, uh, if you go to Korea, 
you can visit their vertical farm, and it's a research project, basically. So they're not really hiding anything from the public. They're trying to jumpstart this technology. And in order to do that, they've got to convince everybody that it's a good idea. If the government does it, everybody agrees that it's a good idea, especially in Korea. So <clears throat> in that sense, you could go and find out all of the metrics that you would need to know about how many lettuce heads can I grow per square foot using this technology, using these solutions, and using these grow lights. And that's fairly well known. So the commercially viable units right now, the fact that they're up and running, A, is a small miracle, <laughs> but B, it also tells you that they've researched this and scoped it out quite thoroughly before they went to the bank for their big loans. And uh, these are not trivial loans. I would say they're in the millions of dollars for each one of these uh, units. But because of the price of food, because of the ready availability, uh, it's food on demand, basically. It's 24 7 365 I mean, that can't be beat. So they can sell produce before they grow it, which a regular farmer can't do. Okay. You mentioned briefly there an 18-story yeah. building. Could you Yeah, clarify? sure. I can come back to that, sure. Because... You know, vertical farming to most people means you're growing food, but there are many other plants that you can grow indoors which have nothing to do with food. For instance, you can grow biofuel foods, uh, plants rather. Uh, you can use uh, sugar beets, for instance, to get enough sugar to make alcohol to make ethanol, so to speak. Or you can use switchgrass, which has a very high content of oil, mm -hmm. and the oil can be used almost directly as a, as a biofuel. Uh, these grow to confluence indoors. I mean, outdoors, there are seasons for these things. Indoors, there are no seasons. So so that's one example. But the one I visited in um, Texas was a very high-tech building sponsored by DARPA, which is the research arm of the United States Army. And this um, facility produces virus particles, all right? Not the virus, just the virus particle. Because the particle is the thing that your immune system sees when they inject you with a vaccine. Okay. Okay? So what they're doing here is they're making vaccine against influenza virus, against the H1N1 strain of influenza virus, and they're using a plant to manufacture this. Now, I see that your eyebrows are raised. <laughs> so are mine. <laughs> How does all that work? <laughs> um... I would, I would tell your listeners to go to a website called This Week in Virology. And on that website, which we have a podcast, that's the podcast, by the way, one of the episodes champions this concept. Okay, but in brief, I'll tell you the concept. It involves molecular biology. So you take a, another virus called a vector. And in the vector virus, you insert the gene for the protein that encodes the capsule for the influenza virus. You're not going to make a virus. You're going to make a virus particle. All right. Then you take this, this engineered virus and you, in, and you infect a bacteria with it. And the bacteria's name is Agrobacter. And now, the reason why they're using this bacteria is because Agrobacter bacteria traditionally is used to infect plants. And it's used as a control measure in some cases because it kills the plant eventually. In other cases, the plant kills the bacteria. And what they've selected for in this high-tech greenhouse, which is 18 stories tall, with automated racks of growing systems all the way up to the ceiling, 
Right. So quite impressive, actually, <laughs> with just grow lights and hydroponics. They're growing a version of a tobacco plant, which grows wild in Australia. And it is very, very susceptible to the agrobacter bacteria. Okay, so you can, you can really infect them really easy. Okay, so the system then involves using a, a vector virus to infect the bacteria, using the bacteria to infect the plant. The plant then kills off the bacteria after a few replication cycles, releasing the virus. The virus then infects the plant. <laughs> and so almost every cell of that plant gets infected with this virus and begins producing virus particles of an influenza H1N1 type. Now, all you have to do is come along and pick the plant and getting out a wine press or something akin to it, you put in a kilo of engineered plant and press out the plant juice. And in that plant juice will be plant proteins and plant substances like chlorophyll and the virus particle. And in a three-step purification system, you can actually get a pure virus particle. Now, for every kilo of plants, you can immunize 1,500 people. Let me tell you what the story is today without that. Okay. How do you make influenza virus vaccine? The answer is you get duck eggs or chicken eggs that are fertile and have an embryo growing in them. You punch a hole in the egg. You inject live virus into the hole, and it infects the embryo. And then sometime down the road, maybe a week or two weeks, you take out the embryo, extract the virus, and then inactivate it and use that as your vaccine. Now, it takes one egg to make one dose. If you add up how many doses equals 1,500, it's like 100 times more egg material than you use plant material to make the same amount. And it takes an enormous amount of effort to extract that virus from that animal material. Whereas with a plant material, it's quite simple. So... There are now three of these facilities in the United States that are manufacturing, let's just say, proteins of choice, all right? I'll give you another example. If you were suffering from hemophilia, which, by the way, originated in England, <laughs> and you're missing factor nine, which is the clotting factor protein that you need to complete the cascade for clots, a plant will make it for you. You can get the virus to have the gene for factor IX protein, then you can infect the bacteria, you can infect the plant, and then the next thing you know, you're extracting not the virus particle from the plant material, but factor IX protein from the plant. And you can get a lot of it, I mean gram quantities of it, enough so that if this were to be the method of choice for producing factor IX, the price of factor IX would be so low that everybody who had hemophilia could actually afford it. That's the promise of indoor plant growing, okay, that has nothing to do with food. <laughs> it sounds a very impressive potential, and, and vegan as well. Oh, so I have, it's I, very I, vegan. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's as vegan as you get. Yeah. Um, By I, the way, my vertical farms, if you ask me yeah, what my version was like uh, for food production, I would include animals in my um, mm. vertical farm, but I wouldn't include four-legged animals, okay? They belong outdoors, yeah. and they belong... They, they deserve to be treated humanely. In fact, anything living deserves to be treated humanely, including your plants. So I'm all in favor of fish. 
I'm in favor of crustaceans, like shrimp mm. and crabs. And they can all be grown indoors, too, or mollusks. So those three protein sources, and in addition, maybe poultry. Okay. Okay, but nothing higher in life form than chicken is. But, yeah, because the amount of space needed would just exactly, make exactly, it exactly. Okay, so this all sounds a very, very good idea, and you've got a few examples you've mentioned that are happening at the moment, but what's stopping us from doing this across the world? Nothing. <laughs> no, it's a great question because, you know, in the past I would say, you know, money or inertia or non-acceptance of the idea or something, but it is happening all around the world now. So Japan, Korea, Singapore, I'm sure China's working hard on this also. I've, I've spoken in India. I know that they're very excited about the idea. So if they are, they'll find a way to do it. Uh, and in, in essence, what will happen, I think, uh, just like with every other uh, major invention, is that the uh, wealthy countries will start to develop this first. They will come up with high-tech versions that only they can afford, but the rest of the world will get a whiff of it and say, we want that too. And someone who's smarter than those other people will figure out a nice way to make it cheaper, better, more reliable, and, and readily available. Um, one of the talks that I heard today at the TEDx, um, by the way, which is a fantastic series, I, I congratulate your university on this, was about refugee camps for displaced children and the lack of food and water in those places. And a vertical farm that's portable and modular and uh, high-tech and, and doesn't require any input from a technician, but the food will take care of itself, at least for the first month, which is easy to do, by the way, can produce highly nutritious, readily available food for people who need it right now. You can have these things growing, and you can sell as much as you want, but continue to replant. And the moment a crisis arises, you put those containers on a ship or a plane, and you whip them into the area, and the next day those people can be eating. So that's a virtue of this technology that I didn't get a chance to speak about, but I certainly uh, would have, if they had given me 18 minutes, I would have. <laughs> I'm assuming you're referring to Rob Williams there from War Child. Have you yes. managed to pass on that idea? Yeah, well, we've yeah. talked in um, general about it, and he was very impressed with the concept. And, and <clears throat> I think what he needs to know now is there are a bunch of containers uh, that they use for shipping, that are discarded after the contents is emptied on the shore of wherever they end up. And they just pile up and continue to pile up. And these shipping containers are metal, and they're durable. And so someone has actually figured out how to turn it into a grow chamber. And so all you have to do is figure out a way to Velcro them together so they don't come apart, so you can stack them and make them safe. And at the same time, you can have a diversity of crops, and you can replicate this thing in all directions. If the shipping containers ship well loaded, imagine how they'd ship unloaded. <laughs> um, you mentioned in your talk um, the benefits of vertical farming. Yeah. What are the risks? Right. Um, the risks are getting it wrong. I mean, if you, if you think you know what you're doing and you don't, and you... Uh, make a building that will grow food and somehow it becomes contaminated, for instance, then you're going to create a bigger problem than you had before you had that farm up and running. Uh, another stumbling block in this uh, issue is the cost, all right? There's the biggest impetus for getting anything done is to make it financially available. And this has not happened because the expense of grow lights 
has uh, retarded people's thinking process. Um, they're expensive, and uh, <clears throat> they're very, very efficient, but they're not efficient enough. They're 28% efficient, and we've had a meeting on this already where that same question came up to five different groups, and one was a social group, one was a political group, one was a technology group, one was a uh, growth systems group, and another one was just another group that we sort of put a label on, and every group came back with the same answer. We could do this tomorrow if the efficiency of grow lights was 50%. So if your engineering groups are listening out there, <laughs> well, I can actually jump ahead of the story here and say that a 50% efficient LED grow light already exists, but it has not been released to the general market yet because the company that produces them also produced the 28% efficient grow lights, and there are lots of those on the shelves that still need to be sold. So once those others are sold, they're going to introduce the 50%. Once the 50% is available, it, you and I could go to the bank and say, look, here are our energy costs, here are our grow costs, and here are our sales. And the sales of what we want to grow exceeds by a factor of 10 the amount of energy and, and time and money we have to put into this project. So, so for me, that's the biggest stumbling block right now. Um, I mean, anything could go wrong with technology. You know this as well as I do. So people can screw up on the barriers, for instance, and uh, allow plant diseases to enter where they shouldn't. They can um, inadvertently allow insects to come in and spoil the crop. But I, I have an answer for that, too, because that's still not so bad because it's indoors, right? <clears throat> All you have to do is get out of there, shut the door, and do it right the next time. What does a farmer outside have to do? Start again next year. So they've got a year's delay before they can go back to, to doing it, and the indoor farmer has a week. So which one would you pick? I would certainly pick the week. You're, the learning curve is going to be steep on this one. The high-tech greenhouse industry has been a huge help on it. So the only, the only real issue is like uh, integration of systems for multiple-story buildings. It's much the same problem as um, making a one-stage rocket and then saying, right, we can't go to the moon on a one-stage rocket. We need a three-stage rocket. So how do you do that? Well, we know how to make a one-stage, so we'll base our technologies on that, but we have to invent some new things here. So for vertical farming, the only thing that needs to be really, I guess, concentrated on more than anything else is the integration of monitoring systems for the pH of the water that you're using for hydroponics, the amount of oxygen that you've got dissolved in it, the nutrient levels, the growth rates of the plants, um, the surveillance for plant diseases and plant pests. All of that is known, and it's all available, and it's all computerized, and you can sit in a building. In fact, somebody does sit in a building at the University of Arizona and monitors the greenhouse in Antarctica. <laughs> and everyone in Antarctica loves to go into that greenhouse because it reminds them of home. <laughs> Imagine being there for six months without even mm -hmm. seeing the sun and having sub-zero temperatures in the minus 70s. You know, you go into a room that's filled with plants of all kinds, and they're edible plants. Uh, that's a place that you'd like to stay. That's being monitored and, mo and managed uh, remotely from the University of Arizona. So if you can do that, I mean, there's nothing difficult about this to be honest with you okay and um so what are your hopes for vertical farming yeah my big hope okay i have two uh, the first one is that uh, because 
the vertical farm will bring food to people who don't have food now. Uh, I'm not talking about you and me. I'm talking about less developed countries, basically. So I'm hoping that within the next five years, the technology will advance so rapidly. And it, I can you know, use other examples for that, like cell phone and, and plasma screen televisions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we would never have guessed the speed at which we would have, I'm looking at an enormous television set. I mean, that's an enormous, <laughs> I want that. <laughs> It's a it's a male thing. <laughs> it makes you feel like you're right at the soccer game, right? So that that didn't exist five years ago. It might have on the drawing board for Sony, but it certainly didn't exist in the marketplace. And the first time it came out, no one could afford them. Only the very, very, very wealthy people. And now everybody's got one. Every hotel room has one. It's remarkable. So I'm not discouraged by the fact that we don't have high-tech versions of vertical farms now, but over the next five years, I expect that based on the current progress, there will be government-sponsored programs to initiate research into making vertical farming efficient. And when that happens, not if, but when that happens, because Korea, Korea already started, and nobody wants to be left in the dust again, you know, come on, how many lessons do you need to learn here? <laughs> the hybrid car, the lithium-ion battery, give us a break here. Let's do something on our own for once. And you can do this. Of course, every country should have one of these programs. So that's one of my hopes, that every country picks this up and says we should devote some of our ag budget to urban farming and mostly for indoor farming and mostly for multiple-storied indoor farming. And in that case, that's a vertical farm. Okay, so that's hope number one. Hope number two is because of that work, then it would become uh, in some form available to the very people that need it most and can't afford any of it. So those are all the less developed countries of the world. There are now uh, 47 identified less developed countries by the United Nations. That's not a lot of countries. There are 198 altogether. So you take the G20s, take 1% of their ag budget for each country. The United States, the ag budget for the Farm Bill was 300 ten billion dollars four years ago. One percent of that? That's three billion dollars. <laughs> Come on, I know how to do this kind of math. Three billion dollars for a vertical farm development program for the United States Department of Agriculture would result in vertical farms. Okay. So maybe the US says, well we don't need them because we have regular farmers. Okay. Take the vertical farm idea and give it over to USAID. And USAID can then go into these less developed countries and say, look what we have for you. We're not going to supply you with food anymore. We're not going to give you any more money to buy food on the open market. We're going to let you grow your own food. Here's how to do it. And we'll, we'll watch over this until you get it right. So hope number one. <clears throat> hope number two is that once nutritional levels in less developed countries' citizens go up as a result, then they can stay in school longer. Because they all have schools. That's not the problem. They just don't stay there much because they're sick from various diseases all the time. So when their nutritional level increases and their resistance to diseases increases, their time in school increases, the literacy rate increases, their economic level increases, and now you've got Japan and Korea announcing zero population growth. Now, they both suffered from terrible wars in their past. And they've all recovered from that. In 1953, Korea was listed as G153. Right. And today, they're G9. So that's my big hope. My big hope is that, um, that 
that more nutrition equals a longer time in school, equals higher literacy rates, equals a better life, basically. So I, I'm firmly of the school of thought that believes that that the world can live as a middle-class world. Forget rich. Forget poor. Middle-class. Middle-class. You can have your plasma screen television <laughs> and two children. And that's what everybody elects to do once they get enough money. They don't invest in more children. They invest in more material goods. And in their future, in their retirement benefits, in their, in their automobiles, in their houses, and in infrastructure, basically. Okay? So uh, what we need to do is replicate what we already benefit from. And, and the reason why we do is because we have good sanitation, we have good uh, water supply, we have good food supplies. We check them for diseases and we eliminate them whenever we can. And we do a fairly good job of that. We, we're not perfect, but we do a good job. Other places have no hope whatsoever for that. Uh, so let's, this is the hope. I think this is the hope. So, yeah, I, think, I hope I live long enough to see that happen. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, thank you. Thank you for asking those wonderful questions. <laughs>